0: Thank you for joining us today. At ResLife, our mission is to develop committed followers of Jesus Christ to reach the world. Our content is created to equip and empower you in God's purpose. We hope you enjoy this message. Thanks, guys, it's good to be back with you. You know, we're at an important time of the year regarding the nation. Uh, Last week, we had Memorial Day, and if you look back at Memorial Day, what happened on Memorial Day, it goes back to 1868. General John Logan issued an order, he was commander of all the American forces, issued an order that said, May the 30th, I want everyone to decorate the graves of those who were killed in the Civil War. So on May the 30th, 1868, there was a massive gathering at Arlington Cemetery. General James A. Garfield, who later became President James A. Garfield, he issued the speech that day, and then 5,000 people laid flowers on the graves of all those who had died in the Civil War. Well, that continued for the next 50 years, but then following World War I, they said, hey, let's do this for everyone who's ever given their life for their country, not just the Civil War, all wars and so it became memorial day prior to that it was decoration day where you decorate the graves of those who fallen but then it became memorial day and then in 1971 we said you know it's been on may the 30th but let's make it the last monday cuz we went to the uniform holidays act every holidays on a monday now let's make it the last monday in may and so that's what memorial day is now when you look back in the military there literally are 43 million who have served, who have placed the uniform of the country on and and taken that uniform. 18 million veterans still alive today and 1.2 million gave their life in defense of what we all appreciate. So it's that 1.2 million that we celebrate, we really don't celebrate. We commemorate, we honor on Memorial Day. The 43 million, the 18 million, that's Veterans Day. But Memorial Day is when we look at those who paid a sacrifice for, for what we enjoy, our freedoms. So that's Memorial Day, and what we do on Memorial Day is literally what the Scripture tells us to do. We render honor to those whom honor is due. And so that's what we did last week. Now, as we come to this week, having passed Memorial Day, we start kind of looking toward the future. And As we look toward the future, over the next couple of weeks, we'll be looking toward Independence Day. Fourth of July, actually. This is Happy Birthday America, it's our national birthday. And this year will be 243 birthdays that we've had in America. Now, that's kind of neat, but it may not be as impressive to you as perhaps it should be. So let me see if I can make it a little more impressive to you. When you look across the world, we have 195 nations in the world today. And as you look across the world and look at those nations, what we have is out of those 195 nations, how long does a government usually last in any nation? And the answer is 17 years. We're at 243 under the same piece of paper. We've had one piece of paper for 243 years. That's pretty cool. But we're so used to stability, we just kind of take it for granted. We don't even think about how unusual it is. I I was over in Poland with congressional delegation, prime minister talking to them. I met people in Poland that in their life, they have lived through seven different constitutions in the life of Poland. And you just think, man, every 17 years, and here we are at 243, so we are extremely blessed. So what I'd like to do is kind of go back to how we got here. And and I'm not going back to colonial days, back when the pilgrims and the Puritans. i want to go back to the beginnings of a nation where we started becoming a nation because we'd been 13 states. And by the way, back in the day when we had 13 states, we were like... Uh, 13 colonies, let's call it, not states. We were a lot like Europe. You know, France and Poland do not get along at all. They, they don't like each other. And there's a lot of that in Europe even today. And that's the way it was in, in America. Those 13 colonies, they often had fights, border fights together. Uh, they all had their own separate money. If you went from North Carolina to South Carolina, you got to stop at the border and exchange your money. It's like going to a different country. And so what happened was in 1774, because of the threat that Great Britain was posing, we said, well, why don't we kind of get together and see about becoming a nation? And so in 1774, what you have was the very first Continental Congress. Now, these guys got together to, to kind of examine, discuss, explore what could be done as a group, all 13 nations, all 13 states coming together. And the guys from Massachusetts had never met the guys from Georgia and the guys in Virginia didn't know the guys from New York. And so these guys are all together and they're here to kind of talk about and collaborate. What can we do? And they decided, you know, it'd probably be a good thing if we opened this thing with prayer. And so they did open with prayer, but it's not kind of like what we would do today, a kind of dinky little civic prayer, God bless the school board meeting or whatever. These guys opened with actually what was a two-hour prayer session. So they opened with a two-hour prayer session and they did not just singly pray. They did more than just pray. Uh, John John Adams wrote so many letters to his wife, Abigail, and he told Abigail what happened. He said, Abigail, when we got together, not only did we pray today, but we studied four chapters of the Bible this morning in Congress. And God so spoke to us out of one of those chapters, out of Psalms 35... It's unbelievable. It's changed our whole attitude. We think we might actually prevail in this because of what God showed us in this Bible study. And so what he did was he told Abigail, he said, Abigail, I must beg you to read that psalm. Read the 35th psalm to your friends. Read it to your father. Everybody's got to see, Abigail, you've got to see what God showed us in Psalm 35. Then after you read it, I want you to show your friends what God showed us, and then I want you to show your father. And her father was the pastor of their church, Reverend William Smith. And he says, you've got to let everybody see what God showed us out of Psalm 35 this morning. But he did not stop there. He said, and by the way, in addition to that, he said, we've appointed a continental fast. He said, millions will be upon their knees before their great creator, imploring his forgiveness and blessings, his smiles on American and arms. He said can you imagine the impact of having three million people pray and fast and that's what america had back then was three million so we've got all these people that are going to be praying and fasting and actually that call to prayer and fasting was the first of what became 15 times that congress called the nation to prayer now this first day of prayer and fasting was actually a prayer and fasting day and so they prayed and fasted about the difficulties they saw. And it's interesting, if you watch the records of Congress, the records of Congress is required by the Constitution. It records everything set on the floor of the House and Senate all the way back to 1774. If you want to see what your congressman or your senator did last week, you go to the records of Congress. We still record it. It's all there. If you go back at, at that point in time, if you look for this day of prayer and fasting, you'll find that just a, a few months later, there's another day of prayer called, but it says, hey, you remember that prayer and fasting we did back here? Look how God answered all the prayers. And he goes and ticks off all the the answers to prayers. And so they call for a day of prayer and thanksgiving. And so 15 times, it's a day of prayer and fasting. Oh man, look how God answered the prayers. day of prayer and thanksgiving. Further downstream, oh, we gotta get God's help again. Prayer and fasting, further downstream, prayer and thanksgiving. So it goes 15 times back and forth. They're very good not only to ask God for prayer, for, for help, but also to thank God when help comes. Now, it's interesting. Not only did Congress call the people to prayer, you'll find that by the time you get to 1815, there were, excuse me, 1815, there were 1,400 official government-issued prayer proclamations in America. So by the time you get to 1815, on 1,400 occasions, the government has called the people to prayer. Not the church has called the people to prayer, the government has called the people to prayer. Now, when you look at some of these proclamations, there's one in the middle there, you can kind of see one that says John Hancock, right under the the word 1400. John Hancock was the governor of Massachusetts and John Hancock issued calls to prayer. Here's one we own. We own about 120,000 documents from before 1812. So I own thousands of handwritten documents of these guys and and things like this prayer proclamation. And This prayer proclamation is a day of public fasting, humiliation and prayer. Now, it's interesting, John Hancock called the state of Massachusetts to prayer on 22 separate occasions. Why would John Hancock, what would he be asking the state of Massachusetts to pray and fast about? I mean, what is is it that he calls them to do? I'll show you what he said. Now, here's what he said. He said, I want the people of Massachusetts to pray and fast that the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ may be established in peace and righteousness among all the nations of the earth. Another prayer proclamation, he said, I want you to pray and fast that all nations may bow to the scepter of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that the whole earth may be filled with His glory. On another occasion, he said, I want you to pray and fast and confess our sins before God and implore His forgiveness through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Another occasion, he says, I want you to pray and fast... He said, I want you to pray and fast that the spiritual kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, may be continually increasing until the whole earth shall be filled with his glory. Now, you can imagine what would happen today if any governor issued a call like that, but especially Massachusetts, really? I mean, (laughs) we got Massachusetts praying and fasting until the whole earth comes to know Jesus Christ See, this is not the image that we get of what happened with our founding fathers back then. The, the way we do history today is so pathetically poor in education, and that's why when you actually look back to what the documents are, you find that, you know, America was maybe founded a little differently than what I've been taught, than, than what I perceive. So you have John Hancock. So here's this, this time of prayer and fasting that's going on. Well, with all this prayer and fasting, about, I don't know, maybe six, eight weeks after John had written that letter to Abigail saying, here's what we're going to do, have a day of prayer and fasting. He wrote her back with another letter, and he said, Abigail, he said, you remember that day of prayer and fasting we had several weeks ago? He said, you're not going to believe what's happening now. So he wrote her, and he started telling her what had happened, and in telling her what had happened, he said, he said, it's inexplicable, but Colonel Smith and a group of his men has just captured a British fort, and we've just captured a 64-gun British man-of-war and a 20-gun British man-of-war, and you listen to that, and today we say, so what's the big deal? That's how you win wars, and Colonel Smith and his guys should capture a British fort. I mean, that's what they're designed to do. No, it's not what you think it is. Now, i got two kids active duty military right now, and so there's probably a lot of veterans here among us, probably a lot of officers among us. What I'm going to tell you is not in any way to disrespect the officers that are here. But back in the American Revolution, when we're trying to build a military, we did not have one, Great Britain was our military. All we got is a bunch of shopkeepers and a bunch of school teachers and a bunch of farmers, and we're trying to take on the greatest military in the history of the world at that point. We're trying to take them on with a bunch of just average citizens. What happened back then was, as we're building the American Army, if you can recruit 20 people to come serve with you, you get to be their colonel. And that's how you became an officer in the American Revolution. Pretty easy. You just get guys to go serve with you. So when John Adams says Colonel Smith and a group of his men just captured a British fort, What he's actually said is Farmer Smith and a bunch of his neighbors just captured a British fort, (laughs) which makes it super impressive. And so he's going, Abigail, you're not going to believe this. And Abigail, we captured a 20-gun British man of war and a 64-gun British man of war, which is really impressive considering we did not yet have a Navy at that point. Well, actually, we kind of did have a Navy. It was... If you ever want to see the American Navy in the Revolution, what you do is you go to the Smithsonian Museum, go up on the third floor. On the third floor, you get to see it right there. It is the Gunboat Philadelphia. It is not much more than a rowboat with a cannon in each (laughs) hand. That's got to scare the British to death when they see that coming at them. (laughs) So you got all this stuff going on. And so John Adams, he said, we've been talking about what we're seeing here. And he said, here's the conclusion we came to. He he said it appears to me that the eternal Son of God is operating powerfully against the British nation. He go, yeah, that's right, because there's no other explanation for what was. See, this is their writings, this is what they saw. They were the ones who lived it, who saw it, who felt it. They're asking for prayer, they're fasting for God's intervention, and they're saying this is a God deal that's happening. As you move throughout that early uh, American independence time, if you go to 1777, 1778, that's the winter at Valley Forge. We know that that was a particularly tough time for the American Army. Um, We lost between 12 and 15 soldiers every day, dying at Valley Forge. And George Washington would go out among them, try to keep the morale high, but it was just, it was a tough, tough, tough time in the life of the American military, because we were really young, we're we're not winning battles to, to speak of, and we got 12 to 20 guys, 12 to 15 guys dying every day, and so... Washington, I mean, he really he wanted God's help, and, and this is where one of the famous paintings was done at Valley Forge. And you see Washington kneeling in prayer here, which is the way you often see him painted. Uh, for example, in the Congressional Chapel, the U.S. Congress, Washington kneels in prayer outside Federal Hall in New York City, where the first Congress was. Is the the painting of Washington kneeling in prayer? There are so many depictions of Washington kneeling in prayer. They have a statue of Washington kneeling in prayer at Valley Forge. But it's not that he just prayed, it's that he prayed really fervently. The story of this is actually told by a guy looking around the tree right there. If you can see that guy, his name is Isaac Potts. He's wearing a hat, he's a Quaker, which means he is a loyalist. He is pro-British. He does not support the American independence movement. And he said that he was walking home one day, and that's his home back in the left. That, that, that's the home of Isaac Potts. You go to Valley Forge, that house is still standing there. He said as he was going home, he passed by a grove of trees. He passed by a grove of trees. He heard noise coming from within. And knowing that nothing should have been going on, he was intrigued, sounded like a conversation going on with folks, and so he got behind a tree, and he leaned out around the tree to see who was talking to whom. And as he looked around, it was one guy. And he recognized him immediately. That's the enemy. That's the commander-in-chief of the enemy forces. That's George Washington. And Potts stood there mesmerized for the next several moments. He watched as Washington poured out his heart to God with great fervor and, and great, great passion. And Potts just stood there and watched his enemy pray. And Isaac finally got back behind the tree. He backed away from the tree, and he went on home. When he got home, his wife, Sarah, picked up the rest of the story, said that he came in, he went over the table, he sat down, he put his elbows up on the table, he buried his head in his hands, and he said, it's over, it's over, it's all over. She said, what are you talking about? It's over, it's over, I tell you it's over. What's going on? I just saw the leader of the enemy forces pray, and when a man prays like that, his prayers are going to be answered. We're going to lose this thing, sure. It's over, it's over, it's over. He's convinced he's on the wrong side in this thing just because of how George Washington prayed. Now, that's significant because we don't think of him in that way today, but that's why so many paintings were done of him in prayer. We just don't know him as a man of prayer anymore. And when you look at what happened by 1778, when they were, after the Valley of Fords, they came out and went to the Battle of Monmouth, and first real major kind of victory for the first time. It looks like things are turning around. And... Washington rides one of his generals, Thomas Nelson. Now, Thomas Nelson also signed the Declaration of Independence, but he's a general from Virginia. George Washington rides him and he says, Thomas, all the things that you and I have seen in battle, all, all, we've been through this now several years, all the things we've seen in battle, he says, the hand of providence has been so conspicuous in all this, That he must be worse than the infidel that lacks faith and more than wicked that hath not gratitude enough to acknowledge his obligations. In other words, Thomas, if people have seen what you and I have seen, and if they don't feel an obligation to thank God, he said, they're not just infidels, they're wicked. If you've seen what we've seen and you don't feel an obligation to hit your knees and thank God, you're just flat wicked. See, this is the way they saw what was happening, what was going on. Now, we had great guys, we had guys who sacrificed, we had guys willing to do extraordinary things, but we also believed that God was helping us and we saw that time after time after time. We finally get to the final major battle of the American Revolution, 1781 at Yorktown. As a result of the British laying down their arms at Yorktown for the first time in 150 years, we were no longer under British law. It doesn't matter what the king says anymore because it doesn't apply to us. And the reason that's significant is because one of the British policies in America, now remember, Great Britain had a state established denomination, national church. And so if the king's an Anglican, we'll be Anglicans. If he's a Catholic, we'll be Catholics. Whatever Bible he uses, that's what we're going to use. And so, way back at the beginning of America, a law was passed by the king that says if you live in an English speaking colony in America, you can't print any Bible in English. You'll use what we tell you to use It has to bear the the impression, the seal, the approval of the king. You can't print your own Bible in English. But as a result of the British laying down their arms, our victory at Yorktown, for the first time, we are now able to print a Bible in English. And so it rolled off the press about 11 months later. That press is called the Bible of the Revolutions, one of the rarest books in the world, one of the rarest books in American history. At the time, in 1782, they printed 10,000 copies. Today, there are eight copies left in private hands. I own one of those copies. And this, this book, who, who, now who did this? It's at the bottom there. It says that there's a guy named Robert Aiken. Robert Aiken is the official printer of Congress. He does all the printing for the Congress. Everything that Congress does, he prints. And that's why when you look in the front of this Bible, it's interesting that it has a congressional committee up there. James Twain is head of the committee. It has the chaplains of the Congress who have gone through the Bible and says, we've checked the accuracy. He didn't change the scriptures. It is what God said it is. And so this is a good version of the Bible. And so what happens is it has a congressional endorsement. It says, resolve the United States and Congress assembled recommend this edition of the Bible to the inhabitants of the United States. So the first Bible printed in English in America has a congressional recommendation in front of it. Oh, it's more than that. Why did they print this Bible? Well, as it was explained to the Congress when this this thing was done, Robert Aiken said, look, here's the deal with this Bible. He said, this Bible is, quote, he said, this is a neat edition of the Holy Scriptures for the use of our schools. This one will be perfect for schools. And Congress said, yeah, we're into that. And actually, here's the handwritten document that this is called the Memorial to Congress. And this is where, this is the Bible that we want to use in our schools. And Congress said, yes, we do. And that's what has a congressional endorsement in front of that Bible. And that's 1782. 1783 is when we signed the peace treaty to end the revolution. We Stopped fighting in 1781, took a while to negotiate all the terms. So what we have is this guy on the left is John Jay, in the middle is John Adams, on the right is Ben Franklin. They signed the treaty to end the American Revolution to secure our independence. If you ever want to see that treaty, what you do is you go to the State Department up on the sixth floor of the State Department, the John Quincy Adams. Uh, State drawing room, that treaty is displayed. Over on the left side, Article 10 at the bottom, there are the signatures, the first guy, David Hartley, is the British ambassador. The next three signatures are John Adams, Ben Franklin, and John Jay. That's what secured American independence. That's what we've been fighting for, was that piece of paper right there. It is interesting to see the title on this treaty. The largest words on the treaty say, in the name of the most holy and undivided trinity. I could be wrong, but I think that's Christian. I mean it kind of sounds Christian to me. Oh, I thought all of our founding fathers were atheists and agnostics and deists. Yeah. See, this is the kind of stuff that you see on the actual documents, not in the textbooks we write today. This is what the actual documents show and this is what the actual letters these guys show. And this is why John Adams, who was there from start to finish, he signed the Declaration of Independence, he signed the peace treaty it, he started it, he ended it, he said very simply, he said, the general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. He said, I will avow that I then believed, back when I signed this thing, and I now believe that the general principles of Christianity are as eternally immutable as the existence and attributes of God. We did this on Christian principles, so there's no question in my mind. See, that's what Adam said. He's the eyewitness to it. We weren't eyewitnesses, he was, and yet today we got our academic PhDs that know so much more than those who actually saw it. How crazy is that? Now, see, this is where it gets interesting to me because I like to collect the articles from those academics and PhDs. For example, this one. America's unchristian beginnings. The founding fathers were deists who rejected the divinity of Jesus. Here's one where academics are speaking. The founding fathers were not Christians. I don't care what John Adams said. He doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. I have a PhD, and I'm telling you they weren't Christians. This is the craziness of what goes on. We got the eyewitnesses, we got the documents, but now we got people who are so much smarter than any truth that's back there. Same thing with this one. The authors of the declaration were enemies of Christ. See this is real common today, this is the kind of, this, this is an editorial that ran a whole chain of newspapers up and down the East Coast for Fourth of July recently. So you look at these documents and say, really, is that it? I, I speak at a lot of universities, a lot of law schools, I, I was at Duke University, great university, really sharp kids at Duke, I was at the law school there and I put this slide up and I said, here's, here's the guys we call the signers of the Declaration, who can you name? And they said, well, there's Thomas Jefferson and there's Ben Franklin and... Crickets just went dead solid. I said, 56 guys up there, you give me two. Come on, give me some more. Don't know any let me see if I can help you. So I just took them across the front and said, okay, what you've got is you've got here folks like Richard Henry Lee on the front row, sitting right beside him. You have Samuel Adams right beside him. You have George Clinton. Then the guy looking backwards, the opposite direction, is Charles Carroll. Then on the front row, the light brown jacket is Robert Morris. And beside him is Benjamin Rush. On the back row with the hat, is Stephen Hopkins. Next to him, you have William Williamson down leaning on his elbow. You have Elbridge Gerry. Beside him, you have Robert Paine. I just keep going across the line. And they all go, Who? Never heard those names before. Isn't it interesting? We've all been trained to recognize the two least religious founding fathers. We can find the two least religious, but we don't know anything about the rest of them. Let me point out of these guys who signed the Declaration of Independence, bunches of them were in Christian ministry. And actually, 29 of these guys graduated from schools that we consider Bible schools and seminaries. They came out with what we might call a Bible school or seminary degree, they went to schools to train ministers. So you look at that and that's a whole different tone from what we get today, that most of these guys came out of schools that that trained ministers and they were themselves involved in Christian ministry. Yeah, I'll give you an example. Take John Witherspoon. John Witherspoon over on the right side there, he was the Billy Graham of his day. He was the most famous gospel evangelist in America. He had more than a dozen volumes of sermons. He also was responsible for the first family Bible ever done in America. He served on 100 committees in Congress. He is responsible for training almost one-third of the Founding Fathers. He was the president of Princeton University. And if you look at his writings, you see things like this. He says, I entreat you in the most earnest manner to believe in Jesus Christ, for there is no salvation in any other, Acts 4.12. If you're not reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, if you're not clothed with the spotless robe of His righteousness, you must forever perish. Now, I could be wrong, but that's pretty good for an atheist. I mean, I'm I'm really (laughs) impressed with his theology as an atheist. As an enemy of Christ, That's, that's pretty good theology. See, we just don't know who John Witherspoon is. We have the same thing when we get to folks like Benjamin Rush. Now, actually, John Adams said that Benjamin Rush was one of our three most notable founding fathers. John Adams said you got George Washington, Ben Franklin, and Benjamin Rush. We don't have a clue who this guy is today. Just like we don't know their faith, we don't even know their positions on, on slavery. Oh, the founding fathers are a bunch of slave owners and racists and bigots. I put that same picture up at Southern University Law School, Black Law School. I said, who owns slaves up there? You got one name of fifty-six founding one name. They gave a second name, but it wasn't one in 56, so I said, okay, you give me two names, so there's about 200 founding fathers, you give me two names, so they're all racist pickets and slave owners because you can name two that own slaves, and I can go through all the others that didn't. Roughly three-fourths of these guys were abolitionists. They hated slavery. They fought against slavery. This guy started the first anti-slavery society in America. He actually owned slaves, didn't want to. Under British law, he was not allowed to free his own slaves, which is why he became an abolitionist in 1774 as an act of civil disobedience against King George III, he started society to free slaves because King George said you can't free slaves he said watch me so he did he's an anti-slavery guy he led the national abolition movement in America so I can go through all these kind of guys that we never hear about but back to his faith This guy, with all that he did, he has so many political writings, he served in three different presidential administrations, he's the greatest physician in American history, he started five universities, three of them still go today, just an unbelievable guy for what he did. When you read his political writings, you find statements like this, my only hope of salvation is in the infinite transcendent love of God manifested to the world by the death of His Son upon the cross. Nothing but His blood will wash away my sins. I rely exclusively upon it. Come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Sounds kind of evangelical to me. Yeah, he's one of our great atheist founding fathers, and by the way, He is also called the father of public schools under the Constitution. He's the first guy to say, here's what we need to do now that we're a nation, no longer 13 states, we're a nation. Here's what we need to do with education. He laid out a plan. He said, we'll never take the Bible out of public schools in America. He gave a dozen reasons we would never take the Bible out of public schools. He actually gave this warning. He says, the great enemy of the salvation of man, in my opinion, never invented a more effectual means of extinguishing Christianity from the world than by persuading mankind that it was improper to read the Bible of schools. He said, we'll never get to that point. We'll we'll never get to where people don't want the Bible in schools. Really? We're at that point, and we're told the founding fathers are the ones who didn't want the Bible in schools. What happened to that first Bible printed in America that was done for the use of schools? See, this is the history we don't know anymore, and so we're told, oh, no, public education is supposed to be secular. No, the guy who's called the father of public schools under the Constitution said it'll never be secular. We'll never take the Bible. We're too smart to take the Bible out of schools in America. Then you have founding fathers like Roger Sherman, the only founding father to sign all four founding documents, and he helped frame the Bill of Rights. Roger Sherman actually wrote the doctrinal creed for his denomination in Connecticut. When you look... Through his vast writings, you find statements like this. He says, Roger Sherman says, God commands all men everywhere to repent. He also commands them to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and has assured us that all who do repent and believe shall be saved. God has promised to bestow eternal blessings on all those who are willing to accept him on the terms of the gospel, that is, in a way of free grace, the atonement. That sounds like pretty good theology. It should be because he is a theologian. He's one of the founding fathers that was into theology, and that's the kind of statements you get from him. By the way, he was in Congress a long time. This is a newspaper article dealing with his time in Congress. It says, Roger Sherman, the volume which he consulted more than any other was the Bible. It was his custom at the commencement of every session of Congress to purchase a copy of the Scriptures, to peruse it daily, and to present it to one of his children on his return. So every time he goes to Congress, he goes to the brand new Bible, and as he's reading the Bible, see, these guys believe you should read the Bible from cover to cover once every year. So as he's reading the Bible, he's making notes out there, annotating what God shows him as he's reading through the Scriptures. When he gets home from Congress, he gives that Bible to one of the kids, and that's a big deal because Dad's really famous. He's a judge. He's the third most active member of the Constitutional Convention. He's the guy who gave us the Electoral College. He's the guy who came up with the bicameral system whereby we have a house and Senate. Guy's amazing what he did. He's really famous. So he gives the Bible to one of the kids, and by the way, he had to be in Congress a long time to get that done because he's got 15 kids. So that's a lot of Bibles you got to go through it a lot of time. Who's ever heard of Roger Sherman today? One more guy I'll give you. This guy is Charles Carroll. Charles Carroll, actually, the 56 signers of the Declaration, he is the one that lived the longest. He lived to be 95 years old. Now, that's not super impressive today because the average life spent in America today is 81 years old. So we all know people who lived in their 90s. He's one of them. Time out. The average lifespan in America at the time they signed the Declaration Constitution was 33 years old. So, which means if you're a high school senior, you're here this morning, you'd been alive back then, you would have already had your midlife crisis. Because I mean, (laughs) when you get 17, you're more than half done, you're sliding after you're 17. So he's 95 years old, he outlived his kids, he outlived his grandkids. One of his family members wrote him and said, Charles, you will die someday. And when you die, you're ready to meet God. And he responded with this letter. This is one of the letters we own. This is from Charles Carroll. It's dated 1825 up top, which makes him 89 years old. Signed at the bottom, Charles Carroll of Carrollton, except it's got a shaky hand now. It doesn't look like it did on the Declaration, same name, but it's shaky. He says, of course, I'm ready to meet God when I die. And he gives the answer right here. Why am I ready to meet God? Because he says, on the mercy, he says, on the mercy of my Redeemer, I rely for salvation and on his merits, not on any works I've done in obedience to his precepts." That's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. By grace are you saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Are you ready to meet God? Absolutely. Now, interestingly, when it came to the 4th of July, the 50th anniversary of the 4th of July, 1826, there were three founding fathers still alive, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and Charles Charles Carroll. But on the 50th anniversary of the 4th of July, Adams and Jefferson both died on that day, on the 4th of July, leaving him the only guy alive. Of the 56, he's the last one. New York City wrote him and said, we have an original copy of the Declaration. By the way, the Declaration that came out on July the 4th did not have signatures on it. That was not until August the 2nd, the one that we see. July the 4th, this is what they had. They said, we have an original copy of the Declaration. You're the last guy alive who gave us the who helped give us the nation, who gave us our government. We want you to write your final thoughts on this declaration. We're going to display this publicly at City Hall in New York City. So they sent this to Charles Carroll. He wrote his final thoughts on it and this is what he wrote on the declaration. He says, I'm grateful to Almighty God for the blessings which through Jesus Christ our Lord he's conferred on my beloved country. When I look back over all the past decades, I can't thank God enough for what he's done for our country through Jesus Christ. Wait a minute, I I, I thought these guys were enemies of Christ. How do we get away with them saying that today? We get away with them saying that because we really don't know these guys anymore. Now, I will tell you, we used to. Um, we've actually reprinted an old 1848 public school textbook where that every kid in America studied all 56 signers of the Declaration. We knew their character, their faith, their sacrifice, their family, knew all about it. We even knew the wives of the signers. We studied the late. Do you know how many wives of the signers gave their life in defense of liberty? How Elizabeth Lewis was made a prisoner of war and abused and beat up by the British and died as a result? We don't even know who the wives are. See, we used to know what was there for the country, but it's significant that when you look back to what happened on that original 4th of July, when when they did the declaration, it's interesting what happened at that point. John Adams, in talking about it with Abigail, he said, Abigail, he said, we've done it. He wrote her two letters on the day that they approved independence. He wrote her two letters that day. He said, we've done it. He said, I'm apt to believe that this day will be celebrated by succeeding generations of the great anniversary festival. He said, what we've done today, he said, I think future generations are going to look back to this and say, hey, that's the birthday. Let's celebrate the national birthday. Now, that's pretty astute. Not many of us do something on a day and say, how are they going to see that 200 years from now? But he did. He said, I think future generations look back and think that this is a pretty big thing that we've done this day. So his question was, is this something that should be celebrated? And he finally decided, Yeah, I I think this is probably worth celebrating. He said, said, this day ought to be commemorated. He said, this day ought to be commemorated as a day of deliverance. This day, Independence Day, ought to be commemorated as a day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. He said, if you want to celebrate the 4th of July, make it a religious holiday. This is a time when we should stop and thank God for what... That's not quite the tone we have today on the 4th of July. But how would he know? He's just one of the guys who was there to do it. But see, that was what he thought. And do you know that for generations in America, Fourth of July was one of our top two religious holidays in America. Matter of fact, if I, if I take past to that, that original time and go to John Quincy Adams, a speech he gave when he was really late in life, and, and now we're 62 years after the Declaration of Independence, he, po- he, he pointed out in that speech, he said, why is it that The 4th of July is one of our top two religious holidays in America. And this is what he explained. John Quincy Adams says The birthday of the nation is indissolubly linked with the birthday of the Savior, Christmas. It forms a leading event in the progress of the gospel. Wait a minute. 4th of July forms a leading event in the progress of the gospel dispensation? He says, the Declaration of Independence first organized a social compact on the foundation of the Redeemer's mission on earth and laid the cornerstone of human government on the first precepts of Christianity. He said, here's the deal. When Jesus, the two holidays we celebrate biggest are Christmas and the 4th of July, and they're both religious holidays, because on Christmas, Jesus brought principles into the world at his birth. On the 4th of July, we took those principles and applied them to a nation, applied them to civil government. They both celebrate the same thing. Really? Really? See, that's why Christmas and Fourth of July were our top two religious holidays. That's how they had been for years. So Fourth of July, when you celebrate it this year, think of it as a religious holiday, not a secular holiday. It's a religious, that was the way it was designed to be, a religious holiday. And by the way, when you look at what we have today, 243 years will be our birthday this year. No nation's ever been that stable, ever. No nation's ever been 243 years under the same piece of paper. When you look at that this year, think back to John Adams, who had so much to to do with what went on. This is a warning he gave the young people in his generation because as he's growing old and, you know, he was young and did so much of this stuff when he was young, but now he's growing old and he's made it through 50, 50 years since the declaration. As he looks back over what they did, this is what he said. He said, posterity, you'll never know how much it cost my generation, the present generation, to preserve your freedom. He said, I hope you'll make good use of it. If you do not, I shall repent in heaven that I ever took half the pains to preserve it. Don't make me be in heaven and regret what I sacrificed for the, for the country. He said, you guys, next generation, you take this and you take care of what we gave you. Don't, don't make us regret that we gave so much and it was wasted. That's a charge to all of us. You know, we're posterity. We're the guys that follow and they're trained. And they really set this up on Christian principles with a foundation to bless all people. It wasn't just for Christians only. That's not the way Christians are. Christians serve all people. We want everyone to be blessed. Now, we want them to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, but you know what? If they don't, we're still going to be a good neighbor, and we're still going to help the poor, and we are still. We want everybody to be blessed because of what Jesus has done for us, and that's the way the nation was. They did it on Christian principles. Anybody who comes here can get blessed as a result of that, but don't deny the principles. Don't turn it into something secular because that's not what it ever was, and there's no secular nation in the history of the world that has survived a long period of time. I mean, you can go 100 years, 150 years. Nobody's been that long. And if we become a secular nation, we don't have the same future that we've had. So remember on 4th of July, make it a religious holiday, celebrate as as a day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty, and also take it as a charge to make sure that we preserve the principles that have made us the nation that we've become. Let's not lose those principles, let's not get talked out of it by academics and by news media and others who think we should be secular just because they wanna be secular. That's not what's made us special. Thank you guys for letting me share with you. God bless. Thank you for watching and being a part of our online family. Subscribe to our channel for access to all of our videos and live services. You can also be notified when a new service becomes available if you ring the notification bell. We cannot do this without you. You can support this ministry and help us reach more people with the word by giving at reslife.org give. Thanks again for watching. Be blessed.